Hello, dear listeners. You're tuned in to Food to Go, New Food Magazine's podcast, hosted by me, Beth and Grills, and my friend and colleague Joshua Minchin. How are you today, Josh? Hi, Beth. And yeah, I'm 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 good. The sun's just peeking out from behind the rain clouds we've had this morning in London. Um, it's Friday morning. I'm I'm feeling quite positive, and I'm delighted to listen to your voice in ultra clear, high definition. Thanks to oh. our uh, our new mics. Oh, well, thank you. It's a pleasure to hear your voice as well in HD. We're going to keep banging on about that, aren't we? It's, it's, yeah, it's what a change. I'm sure the listeners will, uh, will appreciate our outlandish opinions coming to them crystal clear wherever <laughs> they get their podcasts. <laughs> and my laugh coming in very loud and clear as well. <laughs> but yes, it is Friday indeed. The sun, as you said, is making an appearance so I'm feeling very happy as well. Yeah and we're going to bring you right down to earth with some hard-hitting environmental topics today aren't we? We are yes today we are talking about desertification a term used to describe degraded land so uh, degradation caused by humans in areas with low rainfall are a particular worry and with climate change and the population on the rise Earthland is becoming more susceptible to desertification. Um, the result is soil erosion, inability for areas to retain water or grow crops, essentially becoming desert-like. So did you know, Josh, I'm going to give you some harder hitting facts here. You ready? I'm ready for it. Go on. Over 75% of our land is already degraded and more than 90% could become degraded in just 30 more years, and that's according to the Joint Research Centre of the European Commission. It's not good, is it? I mean, I, I've got some some more facts just to, to lighten the mood. Um, <laughs> I mean, worldwide, we're, we're seeing around 4.18 million kilometres squared degradation every year. Um, Asia and Africa are the most affected at the moment. Um, but th- there is something being done about it in 1994 the united nations launched the convention to combat desertification and as luck would have it we interviewed a member of its team um myself and bethan spoke to the head of capacity development and innovation office dr richard byron cox just a couple of weeks ago Hello, Richard. Thank you for joining us today. So we want to get started by asking you, what does desertification mean? That's a very, very important question because people confuse um, desertification with deserts, you know, and that is something that is pretty serious in terms of going forward, in terms of addressing this problem. Now, desertification actually means when good land becomes bad right? And it takes on sort of the, the appearance and, and the nature of a desert, right? That is what desertification means. So what desertification actually is, it's land degradation, land being degraded, becoming bad because of several factors. Um, some of these factors are natural factors, for example, wind erosion, okay? And um, let's say water erosion. But a lot of this is because of human action, because we do agriculture around because we don't take care of the land because we are not interested in the land as a value and what we're interested in the land only in as much as we can take from it so desertification is not about fighting deserts it's about preventing good land from becoming bad 
So desertification is where now you have very good lands becoming bad and becoming like desert, right? It, that is not natural. Why? Because the land in and of itself by its nature was something else until it changed because of human activity. So let's take a very um, concrete example. If you look at the, the history of Haiti, which is the first country in the Americas outside of the United States to become independent in 1884. If you look at the history of Haiti, 100 years before that, 50 years before that, Haiti had the, the richest soils anywhere in the Caribbean. It was a huge sugar estate, you know, where slaves work, okay? Today, if you fly over Hispaniola, Hispaniola is the island where you have Haiti and the Dominican Republic. One side of it is green and the other side of it is brown. Haiti, therefore, is a classic example of when Goodland turns bad. And that is a process called desertification. So the terminology can be misleading, okay? But desertification doesn't have anything to do with desert because deserts are naturally occurring ecosystems. What we are talking about is something which is unnatural, which leads to serious and deadly consequences, which I hope we'll probably discuss later. But that's what desertification really is. Thanks, Richard. And why is desertification a problem for the food sector? Well, <laughs> there's a fundamental thing that, that I think we need to understand is that food comes from somewhere. And unless you can tell me otherwise, the food that we consume come from two places, either from the land or from the sea, right? Probably you get some of yours from Mars, I don't know, but none of mine come from there. All my food come from land or from the sea. Now, let's be real here. When it is tomatoes or it's potatoes or whatever, right? You plant that on the land. If the land is bad, if the land cannot produce, what will happen to your potatoes? What will happen to your tomatoes? What would happen to your Brussels sprouts? Please tell me. The point is this. You cannot divorce food from land. It is impossible. It is impossible. Whether it is rice or, or corn or whatever, please, do you plant it in the sky? Do you plant it in the sea? Or do you plant it on, on Jupiter and then go up there and bring it back down here? No, 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 that is not what happens. What happens is that you plant it on the land. And when that land goes bad, it cannot produce. It's as simple as that. If you're an athlete and you're in good health, you will perform well. The moment you begin to get sick, your performance as an athlete is not as good as you would like it to be or it can be. And the reason why is because you're sick. It is the same thing with land. Once it is sick, it will not produce the way it can or the way it should. I am not being any great scientist here. I'm not, I'm not Columbus. I'm not making any discovery. It's just an elementary truth. I think I probably already know the answer to this, but are we solely to blame for this process or, or does it naturally occur as well? No, um, we have our part to play in it, but we're not, as I said, land degradation is not just caused by human activity. It is caused by um, natural things as well, natural disasters, you know, and things of that nature. Um, 
as we know, there's wind erosion, there's water erosion, the soil is eroded because of different reasons. What is important to understand is this. Uh, water erosion might be natural because of heavy rains or whatever, right? But again, we need to see the connection. How much of that rain is actually caused by a natural rain cycle or because there's something called climate change? How many of the deserts that we, the, the droughts, sorry, that we are having now is caused by a natural cycle of drought or because of climate change and our behavior to this planet? How much, how much, you have to answer this for your own self. How much of land degradation, how much our land is being degraded because the way we produce food, the kind of agriculture we practice. How much have we destroyed the ecosystem by, for example, chopping down an entire forest and planting, I don't know, sugarcane or teak or whatever. And when the land produces well for the first three, four, 10 years, and then after that, we have to now put chemicals into the land in order for it to continue to produce. And sooner or later, the land stops producing as much as we want because the law of diminishing returns takes effect and we move on and we leave it abandoned, right? So the point is this, that yes, land degradation is a natural process to some extent, you understand? But we have something called the Anthropocene taking place now, where human activity is destroying this planet like never before in the history of humankind. And what will happen to us if we don't start improving biodiversity? <laughs> you know, it's interesting how you place the question because it's always about us. We have to eat more and we have to do, we have to have more. It's always about us. Everything for us is anthropogenic. It's centered around man. And that's a mistake. It's a fundamental mistake. We need to understand ourselves as part of a system. We're just part of it. Yes, intellectually, we might be first, but that is only intellectually. You understand nothing else. Now, as good as your food production company is, I am going to tell you something which cannot be disputed. About 25 to 30% of all food production is dependent on the butterflies and the bees and so on through something called pollination. You have not paid them one cent to this day for that. Please make up your mind when you're going to pay them, huh? right? Because it's long overdue. But anyway, <laughs> the point is this. The point is this. We are concerned with ourselves. It's all about us. As I say, we haven't paid the bees or the, or, 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 or the butterfly one cent yet. It's always about us. And we cannot see that we're not supposed to go against the system. We're supposed to be complementary to it because we are part of it. We have to understand that. We have to get to the point of universal justice. Until we get there, you know, we have a problem. So what we have to figure out is this. What? Not so much how much more we can eat. Oh, there are 30,000 more plants that we should begin to eat. No, but how much we have already ate and how much we have already destroyed. And therefore, what we need to do to, start up, to sort of correct this, that's the first thing. We need to do that. That's the first thing. The second thing we need to do is to understand that because of that connection, 
we cannot always be taken. We have to give something to. This is a give and take situation in this environment. And until we understand that, until we are willing to do something about that, right, we're going to have a problem. So, so we cannot be thinking about how much more we can eat and how much more we can destroy. No, what we have to be thinking about, okay, yeah, we are in command of this system because of our intellectual ability. Let us command it correctly. And, and just finally, what, what is the UNCCD? And can you just tell me a little bit about the work that you do? Okay, great. Um, the UNCCD is the United Nations Convention to Combat Desertification. It is one of the three Rio conventions. Okay, and that was the really first time that people decided, yeah, we need to do something serious, really, really serious about the environment. So you had three major conventions at that time. One is called the Climate Change Convention. The other one is called the Biodiversity Convention and our convention. I, I hope you don't uh, think me um, arrogant or presumptuous or whatever, what I'm gonna tell you now. But over the years, as regards this convention, what's interesting is that people in this world sort of decided that climate change was so, was so important and the most important thing. And so everybody, including you and Joshua, know all about climate change. I'm willing to bet that you know very little about UNCCD. You know, I'm willing to bet that, right? And you and Joshua know a lot about biodiversity, right? But what do you know about UNCCD and this land business? And why is this important? What's this nonsense these people talking about? I'm right off that. I want to tell you this, that everybody's going to throw millions of dollars at climate change and millions of dollars, billions of dollars at, um, at, um, at um, biodiversity. But as regards land and UNCCD, no, that is why it is called the Poor People's Convention because nobody was interested in it. Listen to me carefully now. Listen to me very very carefully, because this is the Mike Tyson punch. Well, I, I prefer Muhammad Ali punch. This is the Muhammad Ali punch. Now, everybody agrees, everybody agrees that to fix climate, you have to have something called carbon sequestration. Everybody agrees to that. And everybody agrees that about 30% of carbon is sequestered by the oceans. So there's 70% more that needs to to be sequestered. And everybody agrees the only two things that does that. Good soils and green trees, right? So it's obvious therefore that you have to fix the climate change question by having good soils. Where, where does that lead you to? The UNCCD. Now UNCCD has made a lot of achievements over the years, which I'm very proud of. Why? Because they are important, they are very, very important to mankind. But I think the most fundamental of this are three. One, we have allowed the world um, to understand the importance of land. Two, is that the people who suffer from it are now to the fore and people understand how this is connected to everything. And three, we brought to the world something called land degradation neutrality, where we now understand that we cannot degrade any more land. And all of our actions must not lead to any more degradation of land but rather we have to improve that. Some really interesting points there. It's scary. I, I left that conversation frightened. I know that we see documentaries on television that, that frighten us, but when you hear it from somebody who's so knowledgeable in his field and so passionate about it, it, it does make people want to act. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm going to clarify a little bit about biodiversity here as well, which um, we brought up um 
in in that interview for those listening who aren't familiar with this word um biodiversity essentially means all the different kinds of life found in one area so that can be animals plants my email just went off <laughs> last week wasn't it that last week last podcast wasn't it my phone never stops though beth and you're very busy i am the industry's <laughs> leading voice so <laughs> but yes biodiversity essentially means all the different kinds of life found in one area so animals plants uh, and even bacteria um and i was recently informed that as humans we are really bad at promoting biodiversity um we only eat around 12 crops and yet there are hundreds of other editable plants uh, which we could be consuming. And I said edibles in a really weird way. <laughs> <laughs> ultra clear as well. It was ultra clear. That's crazy, isn't it? 12 crops. It is, but unfortunately it doesn't surprise me. I mean, I, I know from my own eating habits, I'm, I'm quite a fussy eater. I'm just trying to think of how many crops that I eat and it probably isn't even 12. So it doesn't surprise me at all. And it's just, I don't know. It, it just, it's sad that it always seems to be us as, as, as humans that are the cause of these problems. Um, and we, we've got to do something, haven't we, really? Um, just some real-world examples for, for, you, for you, Beth, and our listeners, because I, I must admit, I, I wasn't particularly aware of desertification or the problems that it caused, but once I did some research, I, I had heard of some examples of it. Um, I don't know if our listeners will know about the um, so-called Dust Bowl in the US in the 1930s, which caused millions of people to migrate westwards towards California. Um, whole towns in Kansas, Oklahoma had their topsoil essentially removed by wind and, and deposited in places like Chicago and Buffalo in New York. It was a real ecological disaster and, and caused thousands of people to, to lose their homes, lose their businesses. Um, and then more recently, we've got the terrible situation in Lake Chad, um, which sort of straddles Nigeria and, and the country of Chad. Um, I was reading an article by National Geographic just before we came on this morning, and they say that the lake's gone from being 25,000 square kilometers to, to around 1500 since 1960, Crikey. which just, yeah, blew my mind. And it's not just, I mean, clearly the environmental factors and what we're doing to the land are important, but it's not just that it's the human factors that come with that. People lose their homes, they lose their businesses, they lose their livelihoods. And, and according to National Geographic, the area around Lake Chad, which supports millions of people is now a hotbed for, um, groups like Boko Haram and other violent sort of terrorist terrorist groups. So by destroying the land, we we do sort of pave the way for for unrest and instability. It's not just about looking after the soil. It's, it just seems like a massive domino effect, doesn't it, Josh? It is, and I think we have the, the more education there is, the better. People like me who sort of chop up some lettuce in my kitchen and that's that's about it we I, i'm so disconnected from what's happening in in chad or in in, in sort of northwest nigeria mm. it's not necessarily my fault but there needs to be that little bit more education across the board um because otherwise i, I don't think we're going to solve this and it's such a massive problem yet i didn't know about it until we spoke to dr cox so i think that tells you everything you need to know yeah absolutely i feel that sometimes and you know everyone is guilty of this um with the exception of probably a, a minority really that we sort of disconnect ourselves from 
these problems because they're not they don't seem you know they're not sort of in our lives directly and there's a there's a you know a a kind of tendency to kind of not really think about them when when we really should be absolutely and i think we just forget very easily i mean take if i take the example of of the us and the dust bowl one in eight people in california can trace their heritage back to oklahoma from the migrations that's the massive population uh, sorry proportion of the population of california that was that's living now that was directly affected by what happened just what 90 years ago it's not that long ago mm. but it mm. isn't discussed and it isn't used as an example of look what will happen if we over farm our land and, and fail to look after it we've not really had such a problem in, in in the uk but i think that the more education and the more awareness that can be that can be raised around desertification the better and we just have to get better at it i, I don't know how but we need to start listening to people like dr cox that's for sure mm-hmm. i mean there is a, a consensus that if we do want to solve you know issues such as uh, desertification even though it is a worldwide problem it's kind of looking for local solutions so um they sort of say you know in the areas that are affected we need to kind of come up with solutions that for that area um and and, and i I suppose it, it's bizarre because it is worldwide, but it's also coming up with solutions that are local. Yeah, exactly. It's it's a mix of the two, I suppose. Um, you need to make people aware in countries such as the UK that isn't particularly affected by this phenomenon about the problems that are happening elsewhere in the world. But at the same time, there's limited things that we can do from, from our kitchens in London. Um, we can eat, like you say, we can eat more different varieties of foods um, perhaps eat less meat as we discussed in our previous podcast which probably would alleviate a lot of the problems seeing as a lot of desertification is caused by overgrazing but it's it's on the ground locally where the work's going to be done and supporting farmers i'm as you know beth and i always bring up sort of the cost of living and the cost of doing certain things and mm. is it is it are people to blame if it's cheaper but uh, again you, you look at some of the farmers in these in the places where this is a problem they're not big agricultural companies they're not huge farmers with massive great big areas of land it's difficult enough for them to make a living as it is i wonder how successful a, a, a un sort of representative in their shiny land rover come up and say oh you mustn't farm the land like this is going to be this is how people have farmed their land for, for probably hundreds of years mm. and then all of a sudden somebody turns up who you don't know and says oh you're doing it all wrong you're going to kill the planet it's a very difficult conversation to have and like you say then it's got to be from the top the top down you can't just take away one farmer's right to farm their land you can't say Mm -hmm. to one farmer you can't sort of herd cattle on this bit of land anymore you've got to switch what you've been doing for 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 decades that's that's not fair and that's it's not going to work people aren't going to do it i think farmers are they sometimes get a um a lot of the blame pointed at them a little bit unfairly is not, you know, is not just farmers. I mean, obviously cattle grazing, yes, that is. So when the, you know, animals are kind of, you know, the hooves are stomping on the grass, that's not going to be good for the soil. But it isn't just that. It is climate change, which we are all responsible for. We haven't treated this planet well, and that isn't helping the soil and that isn't helping the situation. But it's also things like I said, you know, like the growing population, there's more people to feed. And 
as you said, there are things that we can do here in the UK as well. We can start to look at opening up the the variety of our our diet. Unilever, um, they published a a future foods. um, Don't quote me on this. I think it was 50. (laughs) But I might have plucked that number from the air. But um, they've done a future foods um, sort of a, a piece, a, a project, and it looks at all the other things that we could be eating. And we did a big thing on this in New Food um, with probably one of my favourite headings ever about the mushrooms. <laughs> yeah, listeners, that 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 went on for for days in the office. Definitely <laughs> gloating about that pun, just so you know. <laughs> mushroom for improvement if you haven't read it um but yeah I mean the thing is there are a whole variety of different mushrooms you know and I am definitely guilty of going into the supermarket and being like right what should I have well I'm gonna have salmon with um I'll probably eat that with some broccoli okay wasn't what am I gonna have Tuesday okay well maybe I'll maybe I'll have some you know veggies oh I can have broccoli (laughs) you know I I I definitely do have like my go-tos. The thing is, the reason sometimes I I do that is because I try to think of well, how can I make the most of what I'm eating? Because normally I'm just cooking for myself. So I'm sort of looking and going, well, if I get a whole thick bunch of broccoli, I'm not going to eat that in one sitting. So then I'll eat it for my next meal. Food waste is a huge problem too. And sometimes I feel like you do one thing to help another action but then you know that causes something else and you're absolutely right I mean take the broccoli example because we have the same problem in my house there's only two of us and we don't we, we can't vegetable vegetables in particular I find difficult because we don't eat the amount that we need to to sort of buy it fresh every day if that makes sense so it, it, the solution to the, the broccoli argument is oh, well, we'll just make smaller portions of the broccoli to sell in supermarkets but then what, what are those smaller portions of broccoli wrapped in it'd be plastic there's another mm-hmm. problem i just i do think that um in order to succeed we have to give people small steps because it's such a big problem and it's so overwhelming i think it's very easy for people just to sort of give up and say oh well, there's nothing i can do and i think you'd be forgiven for feeling like that i certainly feel like that i do i i feel like that when individual consumers are blamed for problems that they can influence but are also out of their hands um i do think the rhetoric around it has to change and we have to present people with easy easy alternatives that they can do that are cost effective and that don't that are convenience that's the only way you're going to get people to get on board with this is, is cost and convenience um but like you say it's you try and do one thing to help and you feel like you're just creating another problem by doing that um yeah. My understanding, just to get back to desertification, my understanding of it is you overfund the soil, it doesn't retain water as well, the topsoil gets blown off, we end up with a desert. That's very, very, very simplified listeners, so don't don't take that for, for gospel. But, of course, that's exacerbated by the dry weather that we seem to be having more and more and more, and what's calling the dry weather, climate change as a whole. So it does, as we discussed earlier, local incentives are crucial, but if we can all just help in our little bit, in our little ways this problem will hopefully be solved mm. um but i'll give you beth and I, I do feel a sense of despair sometimes that i just make things worse by doing one thing we also interviewed another expert uh didn't we josh we did yes yes gideon ashworth from bart ingredients who has previously written for new food on the topic of soil um and its impact on the world's food supply um i never thought 
I'd compare soil to wine before reading that article. If you don't know what I'm talking about, click the link available in the text below and you'll see what I mean. Hi, uh, my name's Gideon Ashworth. I'm head of food defence for Bart Ingredients. Why are you passionate about soil? Why am I passionate about soil? Well, that's a, that's a question, isn't it? And it's not something that you particularly that I particularly choose to talk to people about unless they are they happen to be interested in soil as well. Um, but it's actually the basis of uh, of everything we do in food. Um, soil is our lifeline, uh, and we need to we need to protect and nurture it. So. I studied commercial horticulture um, a long time ago, and that's uh, essentially for, for a lot of you, that's agronomy, um, how you grow crops. Um, and a lot, of the, uh, a lot of the study was based on soil science. So if we look at it from a, from a food perspective, from a food manufacturer's perspective, that's where quality starts from. So without soil, we don't have healthy quality crops. Um, without soil, we can't maintain healthy uh, livestock, we just can't maintain healthy humans, um, and there's the uh, there's the the side effects of uh, soil as well that, that it is a, a carbon store or a carbon sink. So without soil, we are scuppered. This might be quite an obvious question, Gideon, but how does desertification impact soil? So essentially, desertification is a is a process of soil when it's not uh, happy. So if soil is mismanaged either through um, poor agricultural practices, through um, chopping down trees, so deforestation, um, through building, through flooding, through um, all manner of things, the, the organic matter and the nutrients as well within the soil will degrade, will go, so essentially you can't grow anything. So desertification is the essentially the absence of anything that should be healthy within the soil. Why, as a sector, should we take note of this? Well, as a food sector, as I mentioned earlier, that is where our food comes from. Um, we have, you know, we're facing a lot of challenges currently. You know, there's a there's a lot of buzzwords going around um, that are affecting all of us. Um, but desertification affects us um, in terms of our crop quality, in terms of food safety um, right from the start. So a lot of us who work in food manufacturing might not really consider or might not have insight into, into where those crops come from and the challenges that the, the farmers face in having to, to raise those crops and sell them um, and, and get them to us in a, in a, good, in a good manner. Now, if they don't start off healthy, but it doesn't start off a healthy crop, good quality as we would measure it, then it's not going to end up good quality um, without some kind of tampering um, which is not what we want to see. Um, so without good quality soil, again, we do not have good quality crops or we struggle to uh, produce good quality crops. So it's the, it's the basis of everything. And how can we improve and maintain soil fertility then? How can we improve soil fertility? So by adding organic matter, um, you can manipulate soil to be better. Um, you know, with organic matter doesn't actually hold nutrients, it holds nutrients for a very short time. So, so the compost that you buy for your garden, for example, the, the nutrients in that in your compost um, will only last for about four weeks. So, you know, a lot of, a lot of gardeners are really keen to plant a lot of compost around their, around their plants, but it's not necessarily the best thing to do other than just to have a bit of comfort for the roots. Um, the, the, the nutrient buffer is actually the clay um, within the soil. So you need that, you need that right balance. 
um, and also, you know, lovely words like loam, clay loam, sandy loam. Um, so you, you need to have that right balance within your soil, and you can add to it. You can maintain it. Um, you can you can add um, you know, well rotted manure to improve the soil. You know, farmers doing it. There's a, a farmer's field right outside um, uh, my window where I'm working here, and I must say it, it smells absolutely delightful because the, um, the farmers recently have been spreading here. So. Um, they're, they're all the things that farmers can do and they do do to, um, uh, to improve their soil. Okay, and where does water management fit into this? So water is a, is a tricky one because it's, it's directly related to, uh, to desertification and soil management, um, but it's also in its own entity uh, um, an, an issue that we are um, having to address as, a, as an industry, as a world, as in, as in the way we manage our farms and our crops. So with some examples, with, with desertification, we're, we're losing land, but in some areas, if there's a, a availability of water um, uh, to irrigate the land, we can also grow in deserts as well. Um, that's all very well and good if you have access to, to renewable water, i.e. a river source that isn't going to affect land further down, downstream. Um, but if you're if you're sourcing from aquifers, then that can have a knock knock on effect on the local ecology as well. So, water is a uh, is a very large issue. It is um, with soil, it is actually the basis of life, um, and we need to we need to manage both water and soil well within our within our agricultural management. And I want to add, it's not. I don't think that. Um, you know, from my experience, that farmers are, are deliberately going out of their way to, to mismanage their soils or, or use water in the wrong way. You know, farmers are looking to survive, they're looking to um, increase their margins and, um, and, and essentially produce crops in order to sell. So um, this, this isn't a, um, an issue of a blame game. And this is a, this is an issue of you know we need to work together in order to to ensure that the the soils and the water are, are managed together for for future generations. Okay, so I've uh, I've got another fact for you here, Josh. Go on, hit me. Yeah. So Gideon mentioned um, in that interview about growing plants in the desert, and they were actually doing us in Jordan outside the city of Aqaba. So the Sahara Forest Project was launched by the United Nations Climate Summit, uh, COP25, in Madrid in December 2019. And it's developed technology to make this land fertile again. So basically, they've created a greenhouse and they're feeding the crops with salt water from the Red Sea, which they've turned into fresh water. And the water, right, is also used to regulate the greenhouse temperature. And they do this. So they've got these, uh, I'm going to say bricks, but they're not, that they've specially designed, which they pump the water down the walls. And once the air from, you know, um, outside blows in, it cools the greenhouse and they can cool it by up to 15 degrees, right? And the whole place is powered by solar energy. That's incredible. Yeah, isn't it? We are... I think we've spent the first half of this podcast berating the human race, so let's give it some credit. We are <laughs> we are exceptional when we want to be. I think it's worth remembering that. We do come up with incredible solutions to very difficult problems. Um, the only thing is we all often end up having to come up with solutions to problems that we've created in the first place. Yeah, yeah. I think just to put a downer on your excellent fact, Bethan, as well, I, oh, no. as I, I'm, I am very cynical, as I'm sure listeners will have, will have realised by now. Yeah, oh, no. Um, I just worry, 
how feasible is this as a solution to be rolled out more widely? I mean, it sounds very, very expensive. Um, and can you get that kind of technology to the Great Plains of the US or to um, the dried up like Chad, for example? Can, can you do that and, and sustain millions of people from it? I, maybe. I don't know. I don't work for the UN, but it sounds very expensive and it sounds like it's an amazing piece of kit, mm. but not really a viable solution. It's a good point. I I think the thing is that it's a desert and the fact that they're able to do something and they are doing something about it is commendable. And people are actually eating, you know, the vegetables that they grow there already. You know, it's actually happening. It's not something in theory. It's actually something they're doing. Um, how feasible it is, you know, f- to expand something like this, I don't know. Um stop being a pessimist <laughs> that is very good advice and as well i'm just thinking as, as, as you've said all that things had to start somewhere i mean computers weren't affordable for anybody when they were first and they also took up the size of a whole room when they when they were first sort of invented and now i'm speaking to you via a computer and i've also got another computer in my pocket that i'm using to, to research facts on so it has to start somewhere so who knows maybe in 30 40 years this is going to be in every single country and every single farm in the world just look at cultivated meat another example i read in the paper the other day that um the price of cultivated meat is going to be pretty much the same as uh traditional meat as in they're looking at kind of four pounds per you know like kilogram i am a little bit like really because <laughs> at the minute you know we're looking at kind of hundreds of pounds but it just goes to show that when there's a will and a demand that you know the price does come down yeah it does and we had this conversation with the with the sort of vegan podcast it's a cycle isn't it so the more people that get on board with this that mm. sort of lower the price will be driven the only thing i worry about with that particular aspect is what happens to the farmers and we actually mentioned this when we talked about alternative seafoods um, last month, what happens mm-hmm. to the fishermen. These, these are not industries that employ a few hundred people. This, uh, a vast proportion of the world's population is, makes their living from, from, mm. from farming animals. So if we come up with that solution to solve what is a, a massive sort of, um, um, factor for climate change, we, we have to find a way to... to pick up those millions of people that mm. then have their lives I think taken away it will them. probably be a case of you know well, one would hope that it would be you know availability of these different kind of things I don't think meat will ever not be wanted and I suppose an argument could be made that um so th- let's look at um robotics and automation uh, a lot of people are saying well robots you know are robots going to take my job there's actually a, a website you can go on to see if you know how likely it is that your your job's going to be taken by you know a robot but the thing is the argument is that well by creating this kind of technology new jobs will be created so i suppose it, it is a difficult one i i think probably there'll be new jobs you know there'll be farmers needed to kind of extract the cells from the from the cattle um you know that that will still remain uh, a job and as i said you know the meat sector i don't believe is going anywhere no it's probably not i'm also talking about a problem that's a long long way away um culture meat isn't as widespread as that scenario is at the moment but 
I think what I'm trying to illustrate is, I guess, pessimistically, it just seems like every solution we come up with leads to more problems. Um, we might be able to save the planet, but does that mean that we then plunge millions of people into poverty? I don't, I don't know. Um, we started off very optimistic this morning, Bethan, with the sun out and, and everything. And I've, I've become definitely less optimistic as, as That's, the podcast has gone on. We wanted people to be um, cheerful and then we wanted to crush them. <laughs> Raise the hopes yeah, and then, and no, then crush we them. Yeah. You know, it... oh, yeah, we have been very pessimistic, but it's important to talk about difficult topics like this. It's important to raise awareness. You know, we can't turn, a, turn our, you know, our, our backs on these kind of things. They are, you know, difficult topics. Ignorance is not always bliss. No, it's not. And you don't get anywhere if you don't, if you bury your head in the sand, if you're part of the palm. Um, you don't you don't get anywhere doing that and we have to have this conversation and we have to work through solutions and we're not going to get it right first time we are going to sort of try and fail as as a human race a few times but listen to dr cox listen to gideon we have to find a way to solve this problem because everything as as dr cox said we don't get our food from mars or jupiter it comes from comes from the soil and the ground if we don't look after it we're um we're going to be in quite a perilous situation soon so Pessimistic, yes, but all these conversations start off pessimistic and as we find more solutions, mm, hopefully they will mm. become optimistic. And as Gideon said, soil is our lifeline. We need to treat it better. We need to look after it. We need more people that love soil as much as Gideon because you can hear he the passion does, in his voice. And, and I love the fact that he said that he wouldn't talk about soil unless someone asked. It's probably not a dinner party conversation, but I, I really enjoy listening to people that are passionate about their field. Um, whatever it's about, it's... It's really nice to hear people like Dr. Cox and Gideon who are so passionate and so knowledgeable about what they study. Let's end this on a on a on a I think a poignant quote from Gideon. Without soil, we don't have healthy crops, livestock, and ultimately healthy humans. And I think we should think about that. Absolutely. And I think if we're gonna succeed, I think as I said earlier, we just need simple things that each and every one of us can do every day to alleviate the problem. Um, and I think that work is being done, but I think offering people simple solutions that they can they can act on to to look after the soil a little bit better um, will go a long way to solving what is a very big problem. Absolutely. Well, we hope you've enjoyed listening to another new food podcast. And if you want to hear more from either Richard Byron Cox or Gideon Ashworth, why not join us at Food Integrity in April, where they will both be speaking. I'm really excited about food integrity, Bethan. I know it's mm-hmm. what, just over a month away, but I know that we shouldn't uh, blow our own trumpet, so to speak. But I, I, I think the panel panels that we've put together are fantastic. And I think there's so many interesting, knowledgeable people like Dr. Cox and Gideon speaking that, um, yeah, I can't wait to hear what they've got to say. So if you've, um, if you've not booked your place, get online and book it. It's um, over five days between the 19th and 23rd of April. If you can't join us, uh, for the live uh, sessions you can on demand but if you do join for the live sessions it does mean that you can kind of participate with the discussion if you wish we've got people from the us we've got people from australia um yeah i'm really excited yeah for the, we've for got people from month. from other places other than those two countries <laughs> yeah it's not exclusively us and australia yes Sorry. well we hope to see you there listeners so that is all that's left to say. So thanks for joining us. And it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me too. Bye-bye. Stay tuned for more. See you later. I might do that ending again. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> See you later. That was cheesy. Keep it, keep it.